Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 651 for the 14th of July, 2019. This week, if you're struggling with Microsoft Word or Publisher to create a newsletter and other publications, Affinity Publisher might be just what you need. Surprisingly, it's also good for much larger documents. In short circuits, as a follow-up to this week's review of Affinity Publisher, let's take a look back at just how much publishing has changed since the mid-1980s. That's when the first electronic typesetting applications came to desktop computers. If you sometimes see page-not-found errors when you try to connect to a website, it's not your fault. It is, however, something you can fix. In spare parts, only on the website, as useful as Google Backup and Sync is, sometimes it doesn't sync or back up, and you'll have to find a way to fix it. Mobile internet speeds in the United States are improving, but we're still in 40th place worldwide. Software developer Serif has been redesigning PhotoPlus, DrawPlus, and PagePlus under the Affinity name for several years. Affinity Photo and Affinity Designer have been available since 2017, and the release of Affinity Publisher completes the set. A feature called Studio Link combines the three applications in a surprising way, and the Affinity series of products are no longer Windows-only applications, as were the earlier versions. Each now has a Mac OS version. There are other surprises. The price, for example, $50 each for Publisher, Designer, and Photo, with introductory prices of $40 each. Publisher includes five typefaces from Retro Supply at no extra cost. There are also iOS versions of Designer and Photo for the iPad. The iOS applications are priced at $20 each, with introductory prices of $16. The price makes the Affinity applications attractive to those who are currently using a word processor to create documents better suited to desktop publishing software. Small businesses, for example, where someone may be struggling with Word to create a monthly newsletter, but where the budget does not exist to license Adobe's Creative Suite. It's unlikely that Publisher, Designer, and Photo will replace InDesign, Illustrator, Lightroom, and Photoshop in large organizations with a staff of graphic design professionals or in advertising or design agencies. In part, that's because Adobe is so entrenched in offices, and in part for other reasons. Any company that tries to compete with Adobe faces a big challenge. That's in part because few companies or creatives need only a video editor, or only an audio editor, or only a website designer, or only a page layout program, or only a design application, or only a photo manager, or only a photo editor. For example, audio is often repurposed for use on the web or in videos. Photos are repurposed for various media. Page designs are repurposed for use in larger publications. For those reasons, any true competitor must have at least a photo management application, a photo editing application, a pixel-level photo editor, an audio editor, a website design application, and a video editor with pre- and post-processing tools. 
The number of companies that can field a team of applications like that other than Adobe is zero. Some companies compete with Adobe's photo applications but have nothing for video or website development. Others have audio processing applications but nothing for page layout or publication design. And some have website development tools but no coverage in any of the other categories. Well, the Earth, although it is a small planet orbiting a third-class star, still does have a lot of individuals and organizations that may not need the full range of applications from Adobe. These individuals and organizations are the ones that Adobe's competitors often seek to develop for. Whether that is the case for Serif, I don't know. But let's take a look at Affinity Publisher's capabilities. I started by watching enough of the instructional videos to establish a basic understanding of how the application works and how it differs from other publishing tools. I wanted to create a book-length document, so I started with Project Gutenberg and downloaded The Wonderful Wizard of Oz by L. Frank Baum, which is now in the public domain. Long documents offer challenges not seen in shorter publications. The plain text file needed some minor formatting changes before I brought it into Publisher, so I used UltraEdit to convert hard returns within each paragraph to spaces so the text would wrap. That process took uh, a little less than a minute. Then I pasted the plain text into Microsoft Word and used Find and Replace to convert straight quotes to typographic quotes. Another minute or so. At that point, I had a 74-page Word document ready for Publisher. I started by setting the base document to U.S. letter size paper and the type of document to print. Serif is a British company, so paper sizes default to the European sizes A1 through A10, and the default measurement defaults to millimeters. U.S. paper sizes are present, and you can define your own paper size when you need something that's an unusual size. Measurements can be converted to inches, or my preference, picas and points. I chose to link images instead of embedding them. More about that in a little bit. The page would have a one-inch bottom margin, three-quarters of an inch on the other sides. I would use a facing pages layout with the first page on the right and two columns of text per page. After defining a paragraph style for body text and another for headline one, I used the master pages feature to set up a footer with the chapter title and a page number. Because I've worked with a lot of other publishing applications since the mid-1980s, most of the settings were more or less where I expected them to be and did more or less what I thought they would do. Along the way, I found that Publisher has a lot of high-end features for an application that also has such a surprisingly economical price tag. High-end features? Well, let's take a look at them. The ability to edit components in Affinity Photo or Affinity Designer without leaving Affinity Publisher. The feature called Studio Link requires the latest versions of Photo and Designer be installed. The Studio Link icons are in the upper left corner of the interface. This is such a significant feature because it eliminates the need to open an image editor or a design application to modify existing images and then update them in the publication. Changes made to photographs are non-destructive. That's because the modifications are committed on layers and the untouched original is always retained. Otherwise, the interface is similar to other publishing applications with context-sensitive tools along the top of the screen, pages and spreads down the left side of the interface, 
panels that can be shown or hidden on the right side of the interface with tools and controls, and the main document window in the center. For book-length documents, text flow indicators are important. They can be shown or hidden. Fields that are linked to master pages can be highlighted. All of these extra indicators can be hidden if they get in your way or once you don't need them anymore. Another high-end feature, the ability to set multiple master pages to control components that are repeated on several pages, page numbering and chapter titles, for example. There are advanced typesetting options, such as ligatures and swash characters. These have to be supported by the typeface, of course. TextWrap is automatic for images that have transparency data. There's the ability to set text on a path. Document-wide baseline management that can be overridden on individual text frames, and a lot more. Another biggie, a section manager that's useful for long documents, such as books that have multiple chapters. On the downside, the section manager always seems to get the page number wrong for the right side page when a document is set up with facing pages. That's mildly annoying, but easily corrected. Another high-end feature, the ability to import text and graphics into the publisher document. That makes sharing the document with others easier. Or alternatively, to incorporate text and graphics by reference that limits the size of the publication file, and it's also helpful if some of the document resources are maintained on a network server. I like the ability to have text frame rulers that can be moved vertically within the text frame, and there's the ability to create tables of contents and indexes, features often not found in applications with a sub-$100 price point. However, yes, there is a downside. The interface is quite busy. Panels can be hidden or revealed, and there are limited abilities to dock various controls on the interface. I didn't find a way to create multiple interfaces. Adobe refers to those as workspaces. That would be a handy feature in a later version. There are 47 instructional videos. Viewing time is about five hours. Sometimes those videos are a little difficult to follow, but they do offer information you'll need to get started. So spending a couple of days with the videos while experimenting with your own test documents will establish a good foundation for using the program. Affinity Publisher has been in development for a long time, and Serif's managers should be recognized and thanked for avoiding the temptation to push out an application that wasn't quite ready. That happens in far too many instances. There are opportunities for improvement, of course, and a few inconsistencies that need to be resolved, but overall, this is an amazingly solid new product. So the bottom line? Well, I'm giving this one five cats, and that's surprising for a first issue. But can Affinity Publisher replace Adobe InDesign? For some users, maybe. But I think it's unlikely for publications, large design studios, and companies with communications and design departments. There's just too much inertia. Some have referred to Affinity Designer as an InDesign killer. That seems improbable, despite the application's extensive feature set and modest cost. But even if Affinity Designer doesn't win over the big shops, anybody who's struggling to create publications with Word or Microsoft Publisher should definitely take a look. You'll find additional details on the Serif website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website.
In short circuits, desktop publishing or desktop typesetting has been around for a long time. And because this week's main story examines a new player in that marketplace, it might be worthwhile taking a few minutes to consider some of the earlier applications. Although some claim the technology dates back to the 1970s at the Xerox Palo Alto Research Corporation, or PARC, I don't entirely buy that. In the mid-1980s, Aldous released PageMaker at about the same time the gem-based Ventura publisher was introduced for MS-DOS computers. These two applications were the early leaders. Ventura, although demonstrably superior to PageMaker, suffered through years of mismanagement by Xerox and Corel before eventually being discontinued. In the meantime, Adobe acquired PageMaker and FrameMaker and was working on an application called InDesign. Both PageMaker and FrameMaker were eliminated as InDesign development proceeded and included specialized features that those applications had offered. That left only Quark Express as competition, and Quark seemed to be actively attempting to annoy its own customers. Quark had virtually the entire desktop typesetting market well into the 1990s, but Quark's market share is currently in single digits or maybe low double digits. InDesign is the winner. Game over. At a time when Quark had a virtual lock on the market, Adobe set out to create what I'm told was referred to initially as a Quark killer. InDesign turned out to be almost exactly that, but along the way it also killed Ventura Publisher, or more accurately, assisted in its suicide. Desktop typesetting isn't entirely about saving money by cutting out typesetting operations, but it had that effect too. Thousands of small typesetting shops that existed in the 1980s were long gone by 2000. For me, and for a lot of people who were adopting the technology in the 1980s, it was more about speeding the process and taking control of the end-to-end -end operation. Instead of consuming several weeks to prepare a newsletter, yes, weeks, it became possible to complete the process of creating a press-ready design in just a day or two. As the technology improved and we gained the ability to output PDF documents that printers could use directly to make plates, it was possible to have an idea for a publication in the morning and hand out finished documents from a print shop in the afternoon. Technologies developed by Adobe made desktop publishing a reality. Scalable Adobe PostScript fonts built into a $7,000 laser writer printer allowed designers to proof files at low resolution, 300 dpi, and then send the files out for high resolution output. And by the way, $7,000 back in the 80s, that would equate to about $17,000 for a printer today. If you paid $17,000 for a printer lately, probably not. Eventually, some laser printers with expensive add-ons were able to output 1,200 dpi pages. That's typesetting quality. Today's 1,200 dpi laser printers start around $400, not $17,000, $400. And a 600 dpi multifunction printer, those can be found for less than $200. Apple computers still have the largest market share for design and publishing professionals, even though Windows-based computers have been capable of running design applications for decades. And there it is, a quick thumbnail history of desktop publishing. Do you 
occasionally see a 404 error when you try to connect to a website, server not found or page not found? This can happen even for common sites such as Google, and even when the site is up and running normally. It's not your fault, but it is something you can fix. Probably the most common cause of this error is name servers that belong to your internet service provider. ISPs have notoriously bad domain name system servers, or DNS servers. The good news is that you don't have to accept the poor service from your ISP. The even better news is that it costs absolutely nothing to switch to better name servers. The two best-known providers of third-party DNS services are OpenDNS and Google. I've used both, but currently use Google's name servers, in part because they are so popular. If you want to try out one of the new name servers, you'll need to determine where to make the change. Two common options exist. Option one, you have a single computer and no router. In this case, the computer is connected directly to the modem. This is far less common than it used to be, because most people on the Internet these days seem to have more than one computer, and possibly some mobile devices that connect via their router's Wi-Fi function. So that's probably not the method you'll use. Changes made here would affect only the computer where the change is made. In option two, you have multiple devices that connect to the modem via a router possibly with built-in Wi-Fi. The router might be part of the modem, or it might be in a separate box. Changes made here affect all devices on the network. Making the changes is easy either way, so let's take them in order. We'll start with single computer, no router. Start by opening Settings, Network and Internet, Status. Select Change Adapter Options, look through the list of connections shown, and right-click your active connection. From the drop-down menu, select Properties. That will open the Cable Router Properties dialog. Be sure that Internet Protocol version 4 is selected, and then click Properties. On the General tab of the Internet Protocol version 4 Properties panel, Obtain DNS Server Address Automatically will probably be selected. That means the DNS will use whatever your ISP provides. Instead, select Use the following DNS server address and fill in the IP addresses for OpenDNS or Google's servers. You'll find those IP addresses on the TechBiter Worldwide website this week. Once you're done with that, click OK in all of the dialog boxes to get all the way back up to where no dialog boxes are open, and either flush the DNS cache, there's a command that shows you how to do that on the TechBiter Worldwide website, or just reboot the computer. But as I said, most people won't be doing it that way. If you have a router, making the changes on the router will affect all computers on your home network, so one change fixes all. Start by opening your router's control panel. Home routers almost always use IP address 192.168.1.1 or 192.168.0.1. You'll need to log on. Virtually all router manufacturers use admin as the username and password as the password. If you have not yet changed the password, do that now before you do anything else. That's simply a safety step that needs to be taken. Also, now would be a good time to see if there is a firmware update for the router. Most control panels make it obvious when an update is available. If you find one, install it. Now this will require that you restart the router. Before you restart the router, though, be sure nobody on the network will lose any data when the connection drops. Then restart the router, and we can continue. Router manufacturers create a bunch of different interfaces. The one I'm using for illustration is from a Netgear Nighthawk X10 router. What you see will doubtless differ 
but the setting you need to find probably will be in the basic interface under the Internet category. So look around and find the selection that discusses domain name server address. Get automatically from ISP will probably be selected. That means the DNS will use whatever your ISP provides. Instead, you want to select Use These DNS Servers and fill in the IP addresses for either OpenDNS or Google servers. And again, the IP addresses are on the TechBiter Worldwide website. If your router offers a third DNS option, you can safely ignore it. After you make the changes, the router will reboot. So again, make sure nobody on the network will lose any data when the connection drops before you start that reboot process. Well, you won't have to reboot to see spare parts, but you do have to visit the website. This week, as useful as Google Backup and Sync is, sometimes it doesn't sync or backup, and you'll have to find a way to fix it. And mobile internet speeds in the United States are improving, but we are still in 40th place worldwide. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.